Today on Pilgrim Radio's His People, Katie McCoy on the confusion over female identity and how Christians can respond. Social media is one of the greatest proliferators of gender confusion out there. You have trans influencers saying how when they were teenagers, they felt so out of place in their body, they hated puberty, and that once they got on puberty blockers, cross-sex hormones, or some type of surgical procedure, that they felt a sense of wholeness and peace and, and joy. Katie McCoy, next. Where it seems cultural uncertainty over the definition of woman seems to elude the brightest thinkers, Dr. Katie McCoy brings biblical clarity to the issue with her new book, To Be a Woman, The Confusion Over Female Identity and How Christians Can Respond. She serves as Director of Women's Ministry at Texas Baptists. Here's Kimberly Birchall. Katie, what was it that set you on a course to writing a book that tackles the confusion over female identity and how Christians can respond? You know, I kind of fell into it uh, a bit unexpectedly. So I had been teaching on gender and women's issues, and as they connected to a Christian worldview, or rather a Christian worldview perspective on the things that we see in culture related to gender and women's issues. And at the time, uh, about five to seven years ago, these stories were on the fringe. They were a few unusual sounding stories to our ears because they were very rare. I think the biggest one at the time was related to uh, a boxer, a male boxer who identified as a woman and competed against a biological female to horrific effects. And this male boxer left significant structural and medical damage to this woman. And I thought, here it is in the name of gender equality that you have people paying money to watch a man beat a woman. And at the time, it was very rare. It was unusual. And gradually, though, it became more and more at the center of public consciousness. It became more included in entertainment. It became part of our vernacular. We are living in a culture that is so rapidly changing. We forget that it was only in the last few years that we heard people use the phrase sex assigned at birth. And that phrase has become part of our own cultural psyche. It's something that people have heard loud enough, long enough, that they have adopted it into the way that they think about biological sex. That it's something that you are assigned by a doctor, some type of external authority, but that it has really no bearing on who you truly are because only you know who you truly are. And as a result of a conversation with a friend who works at B&H Publishing, where the book To Be a Woman is published through, she said, you know, we really need a book that's addressing this topic. And I naively thought, Kimberly, oh, I've been talking about this for so long. I'll bet I can do that with ease. You know, I'm sure it'll be some work, but I'm sure I can crank that out. I had a pinky finger's worth of the research that ended up in the book because there was so much. It was like entering a labyrinth 
of information, not only from a medical and scientific perspective, which I tried to present to readers in a digestible way, but culturally, sociologically, even psychologically to understand how our world has so changed in the last five to seven years. And I think we're all kind of playing catch up, aren't we? On, on everything that we're seeing in culture, we're finding it in our faces, whether it's Pride Month of some new corporate uh, activist initiative, or we're finding things in children's libraries that are just nothing short of alarming. And so parents, pastors, mothers, ministers, they are all on the front lines of addressing this. And that's what I hope the book serves them to be able to do. Share with us some of the alarming statistics regarding gender dysphoria that you bring out in the introduction to To Be a Woman. And you actually call it the new epidemic. It is very much a new epidemic. And I I think I'm probably not the first to even say that because sociologists, psychologists, and therapists have been looking at this trend saying this is so unusual. It really is a phenomenon compared to other trends in culture in so in sociology and in kind of that collective psychology that we're that we're all affected by in our respective generations. So before the last 10 to 15 years, gender dysphoria, meaning a psychological condition in which your self-perception is out of alignment with your biological sex. That was something that has been around for centuries. In fact, there's even evidence of it in ancient Rome. There was a Roman emperor who wanted to be called essentially by female pronouns and and was searching for a doctor who could turn him into a woman. So the concept of gender dysphoria is nothing new. Historically, it has affected about a fraction of a percent of biological boys, so natal males. And between two and four years old, they would express this feeling that they believed that they were girls. And this was such a rare psychological condition that there wasn't even very much research about it. There were a few specialists in North America who addressed it and helped children try to realign their self-perception with their bodies. Now, however, it's all flipped, dramatically flipped, because now not only is this disproportionately biological girls, so natal females, but it is natal females who expressed no prior sense of gender dysphoria in childhood. So these girls hit 12, 13, 14, 15, and then maybe older, and they start expressing that they believe they are transgender, that they were born in the wrong body. And sociologists and psychologists have been trying to keep up with this social phenomenon to try to wrap their minds around what has happened and why has it happened so quickly and to a group of people, teenage girls, in whom this was uh, so rare it was nearly unheard of. Why do you believe girls are more susceptible to thinking that they are in the wrong body? There are a couple of psychologists who have been researching this, uh, most notably Lisa Littman. Lisa Littman, several years ago, did a study in which she talked to parents whose teenagers or young adults had suddenly become transgender. 
And to understand what she was finding, she came up with the term rapid onset gender dysphoria, rapid onset gender dysphoria. And this condition is something that describes a teenager or a young adult who had no prior expression of gender incongruity, but has suddenly said that he or she is transgender. And she found that most of them were females. There were three factors that seemed to play the biggest part in what made a young girl vulnerable to saying that she was transgender. The first was peer influence or something called social contagion. Now, social contagion is nothing new. It's anything where your attitudes or actions are influenced by other people. So you might call it peer pressure or peer influence. So anorexia can be a social contagion. Bullying can be a social contagion. But the influence of other friends are causing so many young girls to themselves adopt a trans identity or a non-binary identity. Um, The other is that it's a coping mechanism. And overwhelmingly, there are, especially young women, who have something else going on underneath the surface. They could be having trouble in school. They could be being bullied. They could have had a breakup. Their parents could be divorced. They could have moved to a new city. Or it could be something even more overtly traumatic, like sexual abuse or assaults or harassment. And the sudden trans identity tended to reflect that there was some other issue that that young person was struggling with. There was a psychologist who uh, is with Family Research Council. Her name escapes me, but she gave an incredible testimony to Congress uh, and said somewhere upwards about 75% of trans-identifying young people report a history of sexual abuse. And so for so many of these young adults, this is a way to deal with or perhaps deflect pain, angst, or trauma into something that either makes sense to them in their minds or gives them a way to get some positive attention despite what they're going through. Now, that doesn't mean people are acting, but they are redirecting their pain to fixate it on gender identity. And the third was social media. Social media is one of the greatest proliferators of gender confusion out there. You have trans influencers saying how when they were teenagers, they felt so out of place in their body, they hated puberty, and that once they got on puberty blockers, cross-sex hormones, or some type of surgical procedure, that they felt a sense of wholeness and peace and and joy. And that if your teenager who's watching TikTok videos or Instagram reels sees this and she too feels out of place in her body in puberty, that perhaps that's what's really wrong. She's actually a man in a woman's body. And, and you know, the not only irony of all of that is is twofold. First of all, no one enjoyed puberty, Kimberly. Right. Who hey, who enjoyed puberty? It was horrible. It was part of growth and becoming an adult. And, and we all required the guidance of someone to help us understand what it was to move from child to adult. But then second, puberty among gender-confused children is the most clarifying event to help that child resolve or desist gender confusion. So here, and it's somewhere between 80 and 90% of gender confused kids come to realign their gender perception with their biological sex if 
they are not confused even further with some type of transition method. So here's the one thing that would help that child's psychological sense of self. And we have a medical community and a therapeutic community that is essentially medicating it away in the name of tolerance and progressive thinking. I can imagine that there are parents and maybe grandparents listening that are thinking of a child and are beginning to panic about this time as they listen. What would you say to them? First, open up the conversation first. Uh, be, be the one to initiate that. Like, hey, have you ever felt like this? Or what do you think of these things? Have you ever seen this on social media? Because if, it, if that child is on social media, the odds are that he or she has already been introduced to these concepts. And then along with that, be mindful that we have elementary school curricula and even children's entertainment that is introducing these concepts to children at younger and younger ages. The key that parents and grandparents can do is to help establish a biblically informed view of the human body, that it is created good, that God made us male and female on purpose, that we will never understand what it means to be a man or a woman and have reconciliation within ourselves until we are reconciled to our creator. And start framing that foundation for understanding sex and gender from a biblical worldview so that your child, your young adult is able to identify what is a counterfeit what is a deception and then also continue dialoguing with them about what is it that you think people who are gender confused are going to find if they were to transition either socially hormonally or surgically what about people who do any number of those things and find that their mental health did not improve in fact maybe even got worse and so listening and introducing them to the stories of detransitioners is so very helpful and then lastly be involved. You know, someone's moral framework is being legislated. We don't often think about it like that, but, mm -hmm. but every time we see our federal government or our state government passing a law, those laws are reflecting some type of moral claim of what is right or wrong or what should or shouldn't be. So I like to look at moms and say, why not you for school board? Why not you for city council? Why not you for state legislature? Because someone's moral system is influencing public policy and social life. Why not yours? Did it shock you to learn that 80% of the LBGTQ community came from Christian or religious background? And why do you think this is? Sadly, no, it didn't shock me. And I think that reflects uh, several factors that we in our generation of Christianity in America need to give urgent attention to. First, I think this goes hand in hand with the deconstruction trend that we're seeing. Some of it is children grow up in church. They might know all of the right answers, but they feel as though they are pulled between friends and church or relationships outside the walls of their congregation and the truth that they know within the walls of their congregation. And so one of the things that we have to do is not only instill what is true, but impart strong relationships that not only can withstand the pressure that they are going to feel from their culture, but also help give them a way to talk about and process 
the antagonism towards Christianity, particularly a Christian sexual ethic that today's young people are facing. You know, I, I like to tell people, so I was a teenager, I went to high school in St. Louis. I went to a public high school in a liberal city of a swing state, and I didn't face a fraction of what today's teenager mm -hmm. has to face. Mm -hmm. Even one who goes to a good Christian school, even children who are homeschooled, it is nearly impossible to insulate them from all of these cultural messages because it is essentially in the water and in the air. What we have to do is present a counter vision and why it is not only best, but fulfilling. And so I think this 80% of those in the LGBTQ community having come from a Christian or religious background, I think it simply demonstrates the need that we have to connect our discipleship to the toughest questions, the most thought-provoking, culturally critical questions that people are facing today, and to demonstrate that the way of Jesus is not only fulfilling, but providing that answer of significance, of community, of holiness, of wholeness, and of meaning that people are looking for when they try to find it in these uh, sexual minority communities. Mm -hmm. I'm speaking with Katie J. McCoy, who serves as Director of Women's Ministry at Texas Baptists. She holds a Ph.D. in Systematic Theology from Southwestern Seminary, where she served on faculty for five years. Katie, tell us what the who, what, why, where, and how are that you tackle in your book, To Be a Woman. So to get my mind around this question, this whole issue, I tried to break it down in a way that was uh, digestible. And what I found was that there was the relational, the sociological, the philosophical, the biological, and then finally the theological aspects of our identity. And all of these things are playing a role in forming our sense of self. You know, I, I came to it too as someone who was a, a, a theology professor. My background is in systematic theology, and I like to try to approach things to try to organize this information. And I have to tell you, Kimberly, it was so challenging. I would find myself get lost in some topic and go, how in the world to present this? So that who, what, where, when, and how is a way to uh, help our readers get their minds around it. And, you know, typically, if we were starting with any question, we would want to begin with the theological but I approached it differently. I said, let's wait and, and end with the theological, not because it is least important, but because we're going to start backwards with what we see and what we see in our culture around us, walking through that to end with the theological and demonstrate how our theological identity, which means who we are, is an identity given to us by God. It makes sense now of everything that we just read. It helps organize and clarify all of the confusion and why that confusion exists of everything that came before it. Katie, you make an important statement in the book, which is behind the headlines are real people. Tell us what you mean by that. You know, it's so sad how this has become a partisan issue. It shouldn't be a partisan issue. The, the mental well-being of the vulnerable among us should not be a matter of politics, and yet it has so become that. And unfortunately, on both sides of our political aisle, 
you can find talking points and rhetoric and even memes that are uh, ignoring the fact sometimes or perhaps forgetting the fact that when we talk about this issue, we are often talking about people who have great pain, who have deep confusion, who um, have deep wounds in their hearts. And I opened the book with the story of a young woman named Heather. Heather came to Christ in college and then began to process the pain of her past. And when she tried to share some of these things with a group of Christians, she, she needed to hear a sense of belonging, of acceptance, of help. And instead, she kind of got blank stares. And as a result, she found acceptance in the LGBTQ community. And Heather shares that she endured uh, these confusing feelings that led her to identifying as a lesbian and then coming out as a transgender person. And she even did the testosterone shots. And tragically, she even got a double mastectomy by the time I believe this all happened before she was 25. And what's so remarkable about Heather's story, though, is that the Holy Spirit had not given up on her. Amen. Because the Holy Spirit, uh, she describes a moment where she felt the Lord impress on her, why are you settling for brokenness when I offer wholeness? And from that moment, she began to detransition and realign her sense of self, her sense of gender with her biological sex, according to the body that God created her to have the, the identity that he bestowed her with. And it just reminds me of two things. That first, we're talking about people. We're talking about people that did not just wake up and come to identify as this, that they are trying to satisfy something in themselves that is deeply spiritual. But then we are also reminded that because this is deeply spiritual and the Lord redeems everything, that the salvation of God is Total. In fact, his redemption includes our bodies, that the Lord is not limited. The Holy Spirit is not bound. This is complicated for us, but it is so clear, not only with what we have in Scripture, that we truly do have everything we need for life and godliness, mm -hmm. even to understand this cultural question. And it reminds us that the deepest need of every person, no matter how they identify, how they dress, what surgery they may get, that the deepest need they have is to be reconciled to God in Christ and to be made right with the God who loves them and made them in His image. What are some of the common myths and misunderstandings in the gender debate? Well, I think uh, in secular cultural gender debate, uh, it tends to rest on a few things. Feelings and stereotypes. Because the significant thing is when you take gender away from the body, essentially when you divorce it from the body, the only thing that you're left with is how you feel and how you process your feelings compared to gender expression around you. So very practically, if you have a seven-year-old girl who doesn't like wearing dresses or bows or pink and would prefer to play with trucks and play in the mud and likes to keep up perhaps with her brothers, well, we are living in a culture today that would tell that seven-year-old girl or at least suggest to her that, you know, perhaps you're actually a boy. You're just in a girl's body. And the reason this idea is introduced with such ease is the cultural belief that your feelings are the only thing that matter about who you are, right. that not even your body has the authority to tell you 
who you truly are. And if your body doesn't have the authority to tell you who you are, well, certainly religion doesn't, or your parents don't, or some claim in a Bible saying that God made humanity male and female, that wouldn't have any authority either. And so much of the myths, we can boil it down, are just taking individuals and conforming them to gender stereotypes. It actually ends up being quite individualistic denying of a of a ideology because instead of saying no you're a, you're a girl who is free to take interest in non-typical girl things. You can wear whatever color you want and you're still a girl. You can play with Barbie dolls or you can play you can play out with sports and you're still a girl because the body that God gave you determines your gender. We live in a culture that says you can detach it. And what scripture tells us is why while gender might be distinct from our biological sex, it isn't divisible. It determines. It's not something we can divide from our true self. And the big picture behind all of that, Kimberly, is that we have a God who created us to be whole beings, not to divide ourselves or to to say that here's the emotional you, here's the physical you, and that they never intertwine. Well, we know if you've ever had a, a nervous stomach because you had uh, nervous feelings, right there we know that that's not true, right? How much more complex is biological sex and gender identity and how intertwined they are? In fact, I get into that in the book, To Be a Woman. What a miraculous thing human beings are. And, and we truly are fearfully and wonderfully made, wonderfully and deeply complex. And uh, he made us to image, to reflect, and to connect that complexity in our relationship with him and our relationship with others. As we come to the close of our time together here, all of us in every church everywhere are going to have to deal with this. So what have you found helpful as a response to a sister or brother in Christ who seems deeply entrenched in the political and cultural war on this issue? You know, I've found that unfortunately so many of professing Christians are only seeing this through the lens of news media and partisan politics. Also, unfortunately, depending on what news media outlet you frequent, you are hearing it oftentimes two very different realities. And so I think what every Christian has a responsibility to do is to go back to Scripture and allow the Bible to form not only our sense of who we are, but what does it mean to be human? And what does the Bible and its significance on the created world that God made, including the physical body that He created, also to image and reflect Him, how does that inform our sense of the culture in which we live today? How does it help us cut through the noise to understand what is true and what is deception? And not only that, but the truth, knowing that the truth will set us free and that deception is always going to enslave and leave us unfulfilled, especially earthly philosophies that present uh, humanity in a certain way that is not as God designed us to be, and it will never be fulfilling. How can we respond in love in a way that can be heard? We owe every person uh, kindness and respect, but kindness and respect do not mean acquiescing to someone's view of 
they want you to call them. So this is especially true when we talk about preferred pronouns. You know, we are living in a culture where people view language as not reflecting reality, but creating reality to the point that if you were to disagree with someone's quote unquote reality, that you are participating in oppression or some type of bigotry. And so we are going to have to find the Holy Spirit, our truth and love to both speak the truth in love, but don't back away from the truth. Use whatever name someone gives us, but we have to come to a conviction on how we are going to interact in a culture that is confusing the very foundations of what it means to be a human. And so speaking the truth in love, not disrespectfully, but finding a way to respect that individual, to show kindness to that individual, but always to make sure that we never compromise the truth that we are called to present to that person. You've been listening to His People on Pilgrim Radio. Many thanks to our guest, Dr. Katie McCoy, Director of Women's Ministry at Texas Baptists and author of To Be a Woman, The Confusion Over Female Identity and How Christians Can Respond. Coming up on tomorrow's program, it's Greg Kokel on using questions to answer Christianity's toughest questions. So I tell him I agree with you. Things had a beginning. All right, great. Here's the third question and the question that matters. What caused everything to come into existence? And it's easy because I told them you have only two options, either something or nothing. That's tomorrow at the same time right here on His People. Thanks for listening.